On October 3, 1863, Abraham Lincoln spoke these words. He said, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday in November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. And so thanksgiving became a government-sanctioned religious holiday. An oxymoron in today's world that you could have a government-sanctioned religious anything, but in this case, that's exactly what happened. The President of the United States, after the Civil War, stood up and said, it is time for this country to give thanks. It is time for us to have a set-apart day where we thank not Buddha, not Allah, not Joseph Smith or Muhammad or any other person, not your relatives, your friends, your family, that we thank God for His beneficent kindness and mercy to us. This past week the question was raised on the news, is Thanksgiving a religious holiday or a secular one? And if you draw back to the original intent of the original person who brought it into being, Abraham Lincoln, it was obviously a religious holiday. And up until recently, it's been pretty much that. This has been one of those untouched holidays. It's why I think many of us love Thanksgiving so much. Because it's the least commercial. And there's not a whole lot of you know little pilgrims and Indians and, and turkey statues out there to be purchased. I mean, there are a few of those things. But it's just not... People are looking across to Black Friday and, and Christmas. And by the way, I think that is just the sickest name for a, for a Christmas shopping day. Black Friday. You know... Did you see it? Did anybody go shopping on Friday? You, you actually did, Myrna? Four o'clock in the morning. Okay, we need to have some counseling. Because that's just nuts. Just nuts. And I hope you got some good deals. But I saw on the news, I'm looking at people lined up for miles to get into shopping malls. I'm thinking it's just, just crazy. And we went in yesterday, Cheryl and I had to run over and do some things in Burlington. And we were in Macy's and we were, we were walking through this one department and this uh, salesperson was talking to us and just telling us how crazy the day was. There was like nobody there yesterday. So I, I think, you know, White Saturday, I don't know what you'd call it. You know, maybe it would be a better day to do this. Anyway, it's just, it's, it's crazy what we do with these things. The original intent was not shopping. It was not to make a big thing out of it. It was just to stop and pause and thank God. In fact, if you go back to the original Puritans who came across and you said, how would you celebrate a day of Thanksgiving? What exactly would you eat? Their answer wouldn't be turkey and stuffing and pumpkin pie. Their answer would be nothing. We would fast. Because that's how the Puritans gave thanks. They would stop everything and make the day about the Father. Up until recently, I, I do believe Thanksgiving in the United States has been a day where people have tried to pause. I know the turkey has gotten in there and I know all the traditions have come in there as well. But Lincoln's original intent is hard to miss, set apart and observe the last Thursday in November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. Now let me ask you this question. If you were to search out specific, a specific book in the Bible for a day of thanksgiving, a single book that would have the most passages that you could think of that would be passages about thanksgiving, what would that book be? Yeah. 
I think it would be the Psalms. Where throughout, David, among a few other writers who are collected there as well, praise God constantly. Thank God endlessly throughout this amazing book. In spite of external circumstances, they thank the Lord. And if anyone lived thankfully, David did. If there was any one person other than Jesus Christ in the history of God working in this world, if there was one man who lived a thankful life, it was David. Constantly praising, constantly thanking the Lord. He had the remarkable ability in spite of his circumstances. And that's important. In spite of what was going on in his life personally, David had the ability to thank God constantly. Listen to these psalms. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 8. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 57, verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. When you you hear stuff like that, does that stir you up? When you hear words of praise and thanksgiving like David, doesn't that just kind of get your heart pumping? It does mine. Psalm 142, verse 7, he said, Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, I specifically chose those three psalms because David wrote these not on the back of a turkey-shaped napkin, you know, with his face greasy, pleasantly stuffed, in a tryptophan-induced numbness, lying there on Thanksgiving Day as a couch yam. Couch potato, couch yam. David scrawled these words on the back of possibly a papyrus, maybe on parchment of some kind, when he was half-starved and lonely in the depths of a cave, hiding out while his life was in danger. That's when David said, I will thank God continuously. His praises will forever be on my lips. That's the kind of heart that David had. And you might ask the question, how could someone give such thanksgiving as David gives in so much turmoil? And if you study the Psalms, and we're going to eventually, if you go through them, you begin to realize that David was in turmoil much of the time as he was writing these psalms of wonderful praise and thanksgiving. These psalms that we read in our comfortable churches or barns at times where we're just happy and warm and full and everything's good. And we say, oh, thank the Lord that I've got so much good stuff in my life. When David had nothing, he was saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father. How could he write such things in days of such distress and turmoil? And the answer is simple. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. You're going to hear that phrase a lot over the next several weeks. Because as we begin to get into the actual life of David and consider David and think about David, well, first of all, we're going to see he's a man after God's own heart. And secondly, we're going to be shown the the real person, the real character of the son of David, Jesus Christ. 
you can't consider David without considering the son of David, who was also David was also he was the root of David, came before and after Jesus. But this man after God's own heart, that's the calling card of David. If he had anything written on a card, if he could go around and pass it out, it wouldn't have said King David, it just would have said David, a man after God's own heart. Here you go. And David did not make this name up for himself. The Lord gave it to him. The Lord is the one who said, David is a man after my own heart. And as we consider David, you need to understand at this point, as we begin our study this morning, we look at David coming to this place called Nob, the honeymoon is over for the shepherd boy of Bethlehem. The anointed king-to-be is now going to be the captain of the losers and the outcasts. As all the losers of the area will flock to David. The giant killer is now a cave dweller. And his life is not exactly turning out the way he may have thought it would after being anointed to be God's king. This will cover a span of ten years. Not ten days. Not ten months. Ten years. When was the last time your life was bad for ten years? Now some of you possibly could raise your hand and say, I've had a rough go. Some had a childhood where ten years of your childhood was a mess. Some have had adulthood where years things just didn't seem to be working out. And if that's the place that you are in or you have been there, then you understand David. But many of us have not gone ten solid years of distress like David went through. But across this span of time, God is doing a deep work in David's heart. And often this is the way the Lord works. He anoints us, He calls us, and then He goes to work. So if you're feeling called right now, (laughs) a little warning to you. Life may not get better because you've been called. It may get worse. But the presence of the Lord will be greater. And your thanksgiving and your praise will increase as you see the Lord working in your life. As we get to know David, we will see more and more the reason God had behind this seemingly absurd designation. 1 Samuel 13, 14. God said to Samuel, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Paul testified that the Lord raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. This is a prayer that I have prayed. And I invite you to pray over the next several weeks. God, make me a person after your own heart. Now, it's a risky prayer. God, would you do whatever you need to do to make me a person after your own heart? It's often to do on Sunday mornings. I was watching David Jeremiah. He was talking about his life and how he went from where he was when he was younger and in college and wanting to be a radio broadcaster and wanting to to be out there doing broadcasting to where he is today, broadcasting in 18 different countries and Spanish and all kinds of different languages. And and he couldn't have imagined that he kind of gave up the dream to be a broadcaster, to be a preacher. And now he's got his huge church and he's broadcasting all the time. And and I kind of watched that and went, that'd be cool. That'd be kind of cool, you know, to have radio broadcast right out of the bridge, you know, to have my voice in other nations. I could go for that. And then David Jeremiah began to talk about what had to happen along the way for him to get there, and I kind of went, well, I'm pretty happy where I am right now. <laughs> pretty content in what the Lord is doing. 
But God is at work. And the question is not, do you want to have your name known in the world? The question is, among those who do know you, would you like to be seen as a person after God's own heart? You see, I would. And that means if it's in a barn with my friends, or on a stage where the world sees, Lord, would you make us men and women after your own heart? That's going to be the running theme. So keep that in mind as as we study through and think through these things. As chapter 21 begins, David is on the run. He's out of the court. He will not again play his harp or his lyre in Saul's court, but he will play the lyre, as he does right at the beginning. He comes to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And by the way, one thing to notice about David is interesting. He tends to run to sanctuaries of the Lord. When he first took off from Saul... The first place he went was to Samuel at Ramah, to the prophet, to a sanctuary where he knew the Holy Spirit was at work. And then from there, as he was discovered there, he took off and ran again. Where does he go next? He goes to Nob. Now Nob is the place where the tabernacle was most likely held at this time. And that's where the priests were. That's where they were all located. So he now runs from one sanctuary to the next. And it's a good thing to pay attention to. David running from one sanctuary to another. But when he gets to the sanctuary at Nob, he blatantly violates at least two of God's laws. Verse 1 again. David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling out to meet him. Trembling because David was alone, and this was unusual. He should have had a host of the king around him, but he was by himself, and so the high priest was wondering what's going on. He says, Why are you alone and no one with you? Verse 2, David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter, and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. It's a lie. It's not true. The king didn't send David anywhere. David is lying, if we're being completely honest. David was not being completely honest. David is spinning the truth. Now, some have even said, well, maybe he was talking about being on, you know, that the the king did commission him. The Lord, the king, commissioned him and has sent him out. Even if that was the case, even if that's what was thinking, that's not what Ahimelech would have picked up. And David knows that, and he is spinning the truth, which David, by the way, will have a tendency to do. He has a tendency to spin the truth even later on in his leadership. But as he does so, this is going to horribly backfire not just on David but on the priests of Nob and all the people of the city of Nob. The fact that David is not truthful. Oh, It may seem like the right thing to do in the moment. It gets him by in the moment. It gives him some present security but it will lead to future tragedy. If you look over in chapter 22 verse 17. It says, The king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also was with David. And because they knew that he was fleeing, and did not reveal it to me. Truth is, they did not know he was fleeing, because David lied to them about it. Now it says, The servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, who was a bad egg, He says, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword, because David lied. 
David comes into Nob, he lies to the priest. They don't know what's going on. They help him out. And then when Saul asks later, they say, we didn't know. And Saul doesn't believe them. And he has them killed. Lying for present security leads to future tragedy. Psalm 15, verse 1. David wrote, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks, listen to this, and speaks truth in his heart. Truth in his heart. David's running in fear misses this all-important truth. And if you're jotting down notes, you might want to note this. A man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart values truth in his heart. A man or woman after God's own heart values truth in his or her heart. Truth in the heart, gang, speaks to the deepest part of who we are. Who may abide in your tent, David writes. He says someone who speaks truth in his heart, not just out of his mouth, but in his heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. But gang, if I'm speaking the truth in my heart, guess what will come out of my heart? Truth. If I desire to be honest with the Lord, straightforward and truthful here, then what's coming out here is going to reflect that. Which is why we desire to hide the word in our hearts. Because the Word of God, gang, shoves out the lies and secures the truth. I I still am asked after four years, why do you spend so much time in Bible teaching on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights? My my two answers to that is, number one, because Sunday mornings and, and Wednesday nights are really only about two hours worth of Bible study teaching a week. You've got plenty of hours to do a lot of stuff for the Lord during the week. And you want to do other things for God. So we're going to be intent on the teaching of the Word here. But the other reason, gang, is to hide the Word, to get the Word into our hearts. And in so doing, to shove out the lies and secure that truth. The Bible says, Psalm 119.9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. And the word, word there is Torah. By keeping it according to your Word. Your Word I have treasured in my heart. That I might not sin against you. Psalm 119 verse 11. I had lunch, pleasurable lunch, this last Monday with uh, a couple. I won't say who they are because I want to just protect their privacy. But there was a comment that was made as we were sitting there at lunch. And I quote, The word has gotten us on the same page in our marriage like nothing else. That so impressed me. See, I didn't set out at the British Christian Fellowship to be a, a, a fellowship that makes marriages better. Now that's not a bad thing, and we want marriages to grow and to be better. We set out to teach the Word and to invite the Holy Spirit to work among us. But the teaching of the Word, and for this particular couple, being in the Word as consistently as they have been, as she said, has put her and her husband on the same page. And I like that. That is the practical outgrowth of being in the Word of God constantly, consistently. The women had their retreat just a couple of weeks back now. And I was told, and I've got eyes and ears everywhere, and I was told that at the retreat... It's okay, ladies, I don't know everything that's gone on. There were several things where Cheryl and her mom are laughing, and I walk in the room, and they get real quiet. What happened at the retreat stays at the retreat. Okay, that's fine. But I do know this. At one point, Penelope was talking to Cheryl, and they were standing in the back, and... And 
Lisa Bergen, who was the speaker for the retreat, had passed out handouts for everyone. And on the handouts were multiple verses for each one of her points in different translations were on the handouts. And Penelope leaned over to Cheryl and said, Look, everybody's got their Bibles open and they're looking for themselves. And I heard that and I thought, You know what? Because the women of the bridge are more noble. They're more noble. Because they know that they need to look for themselves. They understand that this word is God's word. And they need to be searching it and knowing it for themselves. Acts 17.11 says these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, the Bereans, Paul's talking about, because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And why are scripture searchers like our ladies at the retreat? Why does that make someone more noble than someone who just takes the sheet of paper and reads what's been handed to them? It makes you more noble because you're receiving the word implanted as is. Not pulled out of context to support different themes. And that's what I love about it. That our women were were going through and they they hear a point and they look at the verse and they go look it up for themselves. Does it say here what she is saying that it says here? Is it in context? Is that the correct use of of this verse? That is a right heart, a right attitude. James says in James 1.21 that in humility we are to receive the word implanted. Get that word implanted into our hearts. Because it's able to save your souls. Prove yourselves though, James says, doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And let me remind you that at the bridge, when I get these questions from time to time about the teaching aspect of what we do, we are not doing it for the sake of smarts. We are in the Word for a change of hearts. On this trip to the Philippines, one of the things that I enjoyed most about it, more than any other mission trip that I have ever gone on, was the opportunity to teach the Word. And teach we did. Constantly. We had a group of pastors there at this conference for three days and we just poured the word into these guys so that they could go back into their churches and they could pour the word into their fellowships. Why is that so important? Because the word is seed, Jesus tells us. The question is, what's the soil of your heart like? Even this morning, how's your soil? Is it open to receiving the word implanted? We don't do this for the sake of smarts. We do it for a change of hearts. Now back to our story. David, he has this seemingly harmless spin of the truth. And he ends up costing Ahimelech, the priest, and even the people of Nob their lives. So how can a spin doctor doctor be a man after God's own heart? Let me ask you this question. Non-democratic, non-partisan question, really. Is it possible that Bill Clinton knows the Lord? Is it? Set aside partisanship for a moment. Well, I don't know. He lies an awful lot. So did David. I'm not here to defend any former presidents. In fact, there are a couple former presidents I'd really rather go on the offense against. Jimmy Carter, but that's for another time. 
How can a spin doctor be a man after God's own heart, especially when his lies result in tragedy? We'll look at David in verse 22, verse 20 of chapter 22. One son of Abimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, which would include Abiathar's entire family. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Wait, wait a minute, David. Saul's the aggressor. Doeg is the killer. And yet David stands here and he says, I have brought about the death of every person. Because, secondly, gang, a man after God's own heart values confession over criticism. A person after God's own heart values confession over criticism. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 Paul writes Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone but not in regard to another for each one will bear his own load. David never points the finger at Saul. In all his years of running, though Saul is the aggressor, David doesn't point the finger at Saul, even in this case, where it was Saul's fault. Yeah, David lied. Saul was the one, though, who called for the murder. Doeg was the one who who achieved the murder. But David, David is a man after God's own heart. Yes, he lies. Yes, he messes up, and he will do it time and time again. But he's a man after God's own heart because he is a confessor. Because he values confession over criticism. He's not looking at who he can blame out there. He's looking at himself. Listen gang. The more mature I become as a believer in Jesus Christ, the less critical I will be of other believers in Jesus Christ. It's just the way it works. Paul says in Romans 14.1, Accept the one whose faith is weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Let me read verse 1 again. Accept the one whose faith is weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Guess what? In this fellowship, there are people who have a brand new faith, just barely starting to believe in Jesus. And those of you who have been Christians for 40 years, you love and accept them as if they are as important as you are. Because guess what? They are. And what I have learned and and how I've grown in Christ and how my self-righteousness has expressed itself (laughs) and how much I can say, man, I'm so filled with the Holy Spirit when I walk down the street, flowers just grow. I'll tell you what, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be the most loving person in this place. If the Holy Spirit is alive in your heart, the fruit will be love, first and foremost. For everyone, even for those who don't have what you think you have. He's calling us to maturity, gang. And maturity is confession over criticism. Confession, gang, it calms criticism. See, that's the beauty of confession. Because as it works in our heart, it also shuts our mouths toward the hearts of others. 
Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some versions say complaining. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And I have been brought back to this because i got to tell you I had a critical heart early this week. And the Lord said, I know you're thinking that you're real special here, Rick. But how about we look at you for a few minutes? Confession calms criticism. The moment I pause and begin to consider my heart and begin to return to that prayer, I want to be a man after your own heart, Father, and I actually believe that, and I really mean it. And God goes, okay, well, let's let's deal with your heart. And so He does. I gotta tell you, I think the most discouraging thing to me as a pastor is when I hear grumbling and criticism against the church, and I'm not talking about the bridge. When I hear grumbling and criticism against the church in this world, oh, the church just isn't this, or the church just isn't that, or people just don't know how to do this or that or the other. And I think, it's just criticism, man. How about confession? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So you will be, oh, Paul says, so that you will appear as lights in the world. Why do we need to appear as lights in the world? Because it's dark. And because what happens in here is not about what happens in here. What happens in here is about saving those who are out there. And until the last person on the earth is saved, our job is not done. Why do you want to grow, Rick, in your righteousness? So that the light of Jesus Christ will be more evident in this world. So yet another person may find Jesus. Not so that I will look good. Because you know what? When we get to heaven and we're all surrounded on the throne, guess who's not going to be sitting there? We're all going to be on our knees before Jesus, casting our crowns and worshiping and praising the Lord because it is about Him and only about Him. A man after God's own heart values confession over criticism. And so David, upon hearing about the massacre at Nob, he points the blame to the only person he feels that he can blame, himself. And he confesses. It's my fault. It's my fault. Oh, okay, so Rick, you're saying we're supposed to walk walk around in self-blame. No. Confession. Because confession in the Lord does not yield a sense of blame. David wrote Psalm 34, 22, that the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Isn't that wonderful? Lord, I did this. Lord, I sinned. And he says, okay, you'll recognize that now. Good. Good. Forgiven. Let's move on. And let's move on. There's a second violation of the law here in the sanctuary at Nob. The first one is that David, he lies. The second one, David misappropriates the holy bread. Verse 3 tells us, David says, Therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me some bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread on hand. There's consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. 
For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. What bread is this? Your Bible students know this is the holy bread, the Kadosh bread. It was kept on the table of showbread in the holy place in the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle? A big tent. You go into the tabernacle and there's another tent which is called the holy place. You go inside that there's another section of it sectioned off that is the holy of holies. And as you come into the tabernacle quick review. The first thing you see is the altar of incense. And then the second thing you see after that and Russ knows this because we I think taught it four or five times in the Philippines. The altar of incense first after that is the bronze labor for washing. And then you go into the holy place and on the left side is the lampstand. Straight in front of you is the altar of incense and on the right side is the table of showbread. And then on behind that in the Holy of Holies you have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And by the way, the whole thing looks like a cross, which is very interesting to me. But in the holy place is this golden table, the table of showbread. And the Lord said, I want bread on that table. Twelve loaves were placed on that table fresh each Sabbath. And the old loaves were removed from the table. In fact, let me read this to you. Leviticus 24 verse 5 says, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, so that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. Why bread in the holy place? Because bread pictures Jesus. God was pointing to Jesus all the way back in the tabernacle. In fact, every single piece of furniture of those seven in the tabernacle all point to Jesus. Again, that's another, another study for another time. Or go back and, and order the Exodus study as we get in that in depth. It's fascinating stuff. But he says something in Leviticus 24, verse 9, we need to hear. He says, It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire his portion forever. In other words, this showbread on the table of showbread was exclusively for the priests, which would be of the tribe of Levi, and David was from Judah. So David comes to the tabernacle, to Ahimelech, and he says, Hey, we're hungry, we're starving. And Ahimelech says, Well, I guess you can have this bread if you've, if you've kept yourselves pure from women, which was a, a statute that kind of was added a little bit later on. So the question is, is David sinning by taking this bread exclusively for the priest. I mean, it's a violation of the law, as Leviticus states clearly. Why is the priest Ahimelech given this bread if it violates the law? And so here's the answer that I did not give Wednesday night. Flip over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You see, as we grope along in our study and in our Christian lives... It's amazing how whenever we have a question in the scriptures, we have an answer in the scriptures. So we go to Jesus and he gives commentary on this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, personally, I think that's ridiculous. 
They're walking through a grain field. They're a little hungry. So they're grabbing heads of grain and they're rubbing it out to get the kernel out of it and pop it in their mouth. It's like having a handful of peanuts. They're just walking along minding their own business. Yes, it's the Sabbath. How is this a violation of law? Alfred Adersheim in his book The Life and Times of Jesus wrote the following. He said, The Talmud says, In case a woman rolls wheat and removes the husks, it is considered as sifting. If she rubs the heads of wheat, it is regarded as threshing. And if she cleans off the side adherencies, it is sifting out fruit. If she bruises the ears, it is grinding. And if she throws them up in her hand, it is winnowing. And these are all banned on the Sabbath. This is where the Jewish people had taken the laws of God. Where he said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a day of rest for you. And so they said, well, it's a day of rest. We better figure out how to rest. We better make sure we have it well in hand. Let's set some guidelines, some fences, some boundaries so that we can truly rest on the Sabbath. And so by this point, the Pharisees are offended because the apostles are having a snack as they walk through the grain field because it violates the Sabbath. We'll look at verse 3. Jesus goes on and he says to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions how they entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him but for the priests alone. So Jesus acknowledges what David did was not lawful. But he reaches back into this this traditional Sabbath story. He, He reaches back and talks about when he's confronted with the breaking of the Sabbath work laws reaches back to the story of David to justify the actions of his apostles when they supposedly had broken the Sabbath. So, so is Jesus approving the violation of the law? No. Jesus is teaching the priority of a man after God's own heart. That there is law, but there is a priority that is higher than the law. There is, there is something that's behind the law. That the law was to lead us to... That the law was there to point us to. We were not to stop at the law. When the law was given to the Jewish people, it was never to be an end unto himself. It was to point to something greater than the law. Something better than the law. The third thing you might jot down if you're taking notes is a man after God's own heart values the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Jesus, oops, I lost my place. Jesus goes on in Matthew 12. In verse 5, and he says, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath, yet are innocent? Because they're working on the Sabbath in the temple, because the temple work needs to happen daily, right? So they're at work on the Sabbath day. But I say to you, verse 6, that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned, and Jesus says, you would not have condemned the innocent. Wait a minute. Okay, I'm confused. Jesus, you just said that David violated the law. And that the priests violate the law. And in essence, that your apostles violated the law by this work on the Sabbath. But the last two words you use there, Jesus, is you said you would not have condemned the innocent. So they violated the law, but in God's eyes, they are innocent. How does that work? Listen, all rules, Jesus is saying, all traditions, all regulations set forth by God must be understood in the context of human relationship 
and human need. Again, we do not read and study the Bible to become experts who the Lord has taught that we might lord it over the smaller-minded, less learned people of our fellowship. Oh, you weren't at Wednesday night? Well, let me tell you what happened. Let me explain to you because you're not quite where I am. Let me get you to that place. The law, gang, if it drives a wedge, is being misused. If the law becomes more important than human need, it is abused. If Bible study develops legalism and a judgmental heart, then Bible study has been abused because that is not the point. We um, we have a little house rule. Every year, the Christmas music, decorations, movies, the whole nine yards are not allowed to come out until after Thanksgiving. That's our house rule. Some of you like it earlier. Some of you like it later. In fact, some of you will be shocked to see our house decorated right now, which it is. But it was so funny watching as we got closer and closer because, you know, the momentum builds among the children, you know. Even Corey and Hannah, I mean, they, they stood there looking forward to it and, and it starts to, you can feel the, the intensity when November hits. It's around the corner, you know. And Hayden, man, he just wants to watch Christmas movies. Can we watch Frosty? No, we can't watch Frosty. No, can we watch Rudolph? No, I can't watch Rudolph yet. He just wants to see him and he's just dying. And so Thanksgiving Eve, Wednesday night, he's like, Corey, will you watch a Christmas movie with me tonight? And Corey's like, we don't watch Christmas movies <laughs> until after Thanksgiving. Now, my son honors me because I'm the one who set up that rule. But he would not break. They're driving along in the car. And Cheryl popped in a Christmas CD on Monday. <gasps> and Corey said, Mom, that's illegal. <laughs> that is Christmas music. And Cheryl said, Oh, come on, Corey, just this one CD while we're driving home. Dad wouldn't approve of it. My boy. And they got back and forth. And so Cheryl's like, oh, fine. And she turns it off. And it was so funny because all week long, Cheryl was just needling Corey about this. She'd walk into the kitchen and she'd go, <laughs> And Corey would just go, Mom. And all week long, back and forth and back and forth. No Christmas music before Thanksgiving. That's the law. Now, they were having fun with it, but I'll tell you what. If that law had caused real family strife, then we missed the point. And Cora and I even talked about it. You know, the whole reason we do that is just so that we don't get to Christmas too early. We want to have some fun and anticipating, waiting for it. We don't want to burn out on it too fast. There's a reason behind it. My reason as a dad is because I want my kids to enjoy the holiday season. Not too soon. Let's wait. And then when we get there, we'll have a great time. And we won't get tired of it before it's over. That's the heart, the intent of the Crawford Christmas Law. Which you can feel free to adopt in your own homes at any time. That's okay with me. But Jesus is looking at this whole thing and he's saying, You're missing it. Pharisees. David was in need. He was hurting. He was starving. In fact, he's close to death at this point. And so were the men following him. They had nowhere to turn and no food to eat. And they go to the priest at Nob and say, we got to have some help here. Do you have something we can eat? And the high priest of Himalaya did the right thing in pulling the bread off the showbread table, the table showbread, and saying, here's all I've got. Go ahead and eat that. And David did. And it violated the law, but it, it satisfied the heart. 
the reason behind the law. You see, the spirit of the law actually deepens respect for the law. When I say that a man after God's own heart recognizes or values the spirit of the law over the letter of the law, it's not a blank check to say, oh great, then we can go out and violate the law all over the place because I live by the spirit of the law. I intend to do good things even though I sin, you know, constantly. It's the spirit of the law. No, the spirit of the law will intensify respect for the law. Seeking to understand the heart behind the law reveals for us God's unending love and amazing grace. Now Jesus had previously said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9 verse 13, He said, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I like the way Jesus did this. He doesn't just quote, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He says, go and learn what this means. Which doesn't mean go home and memorize this verse. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I ask the question, have we done that? Have you done that in your own personal life? Have I done that? Have I gone and learned what this means? I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It means the law is not the end. It means the rules are not the point. The religious regulations and affiliations game are not the key. The way we do things as a church is not the important thing. It's the person to whom it all points us. It is the person to whom the law points us. Why study the book of Exodus as we did? Or Leviticus or Numbers? Why do that? Because it points us to Jesus Christ. Why know and understand these things? Why get the law into my heart and the truth into my heart? Just so that I can have truth there? No, it's so that I can know Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And a person who is after God's own heart is someone who is literally going to be after God's own heart who is Jesus. Jesus is God's own heart. You can't be a person after God's own heart and not be looking after going for Jesus. Because He is God's heart. He is the full expression of the Father, John 1.19 tells us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 or 3 right in there. Jesus is the full expression of the heart of God. Did you catch what Jesus said to the Pharisees there in verse 6? He said, I say to you something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the greater than. He is greater than the temple. He is greater than the law. He is greater than David, though he is the son of David. Jesus is greater than all of this. And he is the point. So David took the holy bread and it saved the lives of him and his men in the same way we take the holy bread who is Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and he saves us. He saves our lives. We don't keep the law because we finally realize we can't keep the law. So we take the bread. David's violating the law, but he takes the bread. My life is a violation of the law because I am an imperfect, sinful man, but I take the bread because it saves my life. John 6.35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we begin to consider what it means to be after God's own heart. 
It's to value the truth in your heart. It's to value confession over criticism. To value the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Because it all is about going after God's own heart, who is Jesus Christ. Is that your desire? To be a person after God's own heart? If it is, let's bow and pray this together. Lord, you have much to teach us. And we have much to learn. We have come a long way, many of us in our in our walk with you, Lord. But it often seems to me that the further I have come, Lord, the further I've got to go. I become more aware, Lord, on a daily basis of my desperate need for you. My desperate need for your Holy Spirit to be moving in my innermost being. My desperate need, Jesus, for you to be the way, the truth, and the life in my heart. Jesus, this morning, we pray this prayer as a fellowship. And I want to offer this, my friends, in two ways. If you're not a Christian, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, there is no better way to live. And I invite you to invite Him into your heart today. So simple, you can just pray this. We do every week. Pray this with me in your heart. If you're not a believer yet, pray, Jesus, I want you in my heart. I want to be changed by you to have my life altered and so I believe that you are the Christ the Son of the living God and I ask you to come and be my Lord I I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I believe that you rose again and I believe that you have the only power to forgive and wash me clean and save me and so Lord Come and do so. For those of you who are believers in Jesus and have been for however long, if you truly desire to be a person after God's own heart, and I ask you to take a moment and consider this. In fact, worship team, come on up as we pray. Quietly, if you'll just make your way up here. I ask you to take a moment and consider this as we pray. Do I really, really want to be a person after God's own heart? If you do, then I'm going to give you a moment of silence here to pray to the Father and ask Him. Ask Him to take your heart.